Who do you say that I am? That's the central question to the passage this morning. And really, it's the central question to our lives. Knowing who or what someone or something truly is can make all the difference. Knowing who or what something or someone truly is can make all the difference. James Wilson Marshall emigrated to the western part of the United States with hopes to improve his health after he contracted malaria in Missouri. He first settled in Oregon in 1845. Not, longer, not long after that, he headed south to the Sierra Nevada mountains of northern California. It was there that he met John Sutter. And it was with John Sutter that Marshall would eventually enter into a partnership over a sawmill. They chose the city of Coloma, located on the American River. Construction of the mill began January 1848. Now, if you know the workings of a mill, you have to know that water has to move just right and at a certain depth for sawmills to work. Now, Marshall saw that the conditions weren't quite right and weren't quite what they should be, but wanted to give it time for the conditions to develop on their own. So he used the water's own current to make the drainage system wider and deeper. And every morning he would investigate, go out to the river, and see if his efforts were working. And one morning, first month he was there in January, January 24th, 1848, he went out and investigated. He saw something strange. He recounted what happened that morning later on. I picked up one or two pieces of something shiny in the water and examined them attentively. And having some general knowledge of minerals, I could not call to mind more than two in which any way resembled this. Iron, very bright and brittle, and gold, bright yet malleable. I then tried it between two rocks and found it could be beaten into a different shape, but not broken. I then collected four or five pieces and went up to Mr. Scott, who was working at the carpenter's bench making the mill wheel, with the pieces in my hand and said, I have found it. What is it, inquired Scott. Gold, I answered. Oh, no, replied Scott. That can't be. I said, I know it to be nothing else. Marshall wasn't done with testing his findings after that morning. His crew uh, boiled the gold and hammered it to test its malleability. He then went to his partner, Sutter, and he performed further tests on it and discovered the gold, gold was of the purest quality. Seeing something shiny in the water that day wasn't enough. Marshall had to conclude rightly that it was gold. And that right conclusion made all of the difference. You see, news of his discovery spread around the world. 300,000 people soon rushed to the new, what would become the new state of California, and the United States economy would boom because of the gold rush. Marshall's right conclusion changed the course of American history. Now imagine for a moment if Marshall didn't notice the gold in the water that morning of January 24th, 1848. Or if he did notice the gold in the water, but said, you know what, no, that can't be gold, there's no way, and just walked away. 
Would gold still have been there if he did either of those things? Yes. It still would have been there. Even if Marshall believed in all of his heart that it wasn't gold, it still would be gold. It would just mean that he was wrong. So, who do you say that I am? Jesus asks his disciples. The point of the gold rush story is that there is a right and a wrong answer to that. And a right answer will make all the difference. We're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. You can turn there if you like, or I invite you to turn there. Uh, chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 22 to 30. Looking at a Bible that looks like this, in the pew rack in front of you. You'll find it on page 844. 844. Mark 8. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is God's word. Friends, here's the rub about Jesus and us. We must conclude rightly about Jesus, but we must be able to see rightly in order to do that. It's the main point of our time. We must conclude rightly about Jesus, but we must be able to see rightly in order to do that. You see the tension there a little bit? You must have faith, and Jesus must give you faith. We'll notice in this passage how Jesus leaves more evidence of who he is, of his identity. We'll notice why believing in him and who he is is so important. And we'll notice how we can make a right conclusion and a wrong conclusion about his identity. And we'll notice how he operates to slowly open the eyes so that people can see him. Now, we left off Jesus and his disciples in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Very typical scene last week. And again, we saw that the disciples show their spiritual blindness and obtuseness. They forgot who Jesus is simply over the lacking bread after they distributed so much of it. And yet again, we see Jesus holding out hope for his disciples. As we begin in our passage this morning, in contrast to the disciples' spiritual blindness, we see Jesus open the eyes of a blind man. And we're going to see how Jesus is operating in a similar way in his disciples. So we'll break down our time like this, okay? Three different sections. First, verses 22 to 26, we're still going to see the evidence. Verses 27 to 28, we'll see the wrong conclusion. Verses 28 to 29, we'll see the right conclusion. 
All right, first, first part of this section, verses 22 to 26. If you're reading it, you say, wow, this seems kind of familiar. You're right. You can flip back to chapter 7, verses 31 to 37, and you can see like, it's kind of like the 5,000 and the 4,000. They seem like really, really similar passages. You compare this one with what happens back in chapter 7 with the deaf-mute man, and even how Mark recounts both healings are eerily similar. So there's people in a town. They bring a man with an ailment to Jesus. Jesus takes this man aside. Jesus uses fiddle. Jesus touches the man. The man is healed. And Jesus tells not to tell anybody. Very similar structure with these two stories. Like we noticed, there are little differences between the 5,000 and the 4,000. So there are little differences between these two healings also. You might be able to spot it. Key difference between the healing of the deaf, mute man in chapter 7 and the healing of the blind man in chapter 8 comes in chapter 8, verse 23. You see something Jesus doing unusual there. Something we perhaps haven't seen him done before. Jesus doesn't heal just by speaking. He first asks a question. He doesn't heal just with one touch. He heals with multiple touches. Now these differences, these differences in the minor details here have significance when you consider the context of what's going on. It's not when you consider where this is happening. Again, this is happening in Bethsaida, it says. The disciples and Jesus tried to make their way here before. It's on the north shore of Galilee, but they were blown off course because of a storm. Now these minor differences in details have significance, not because where it happens, unlike we've seen in the past. They have significance because of who is there of who is around seeing this. What Jesus does for this blind man stands out so much because of the spiritual blindness we've seen at the disciples as of late. So picture the disciples, if you will, getting to stand behind one of those one-way glass mirrors where they just get to observe everything that Jesus is doing. And what do they get to see Jesus do here? What do they see of Jesus with this blind man? I think they get to see at least three things, things we've noticed already before about him. They get to see Jesus' care. They get to see Jesus' power. And they get to see how Jesus operates. His care, his power, how he operates. Now, I've loved seeing how Jesus' care displayed in even the littlest of details over the past couple weeks. And it's no different here. Go at a glance over verses 23 to 26. I want you to try to find some hints of Jesus' care for this blind man. I think the precious detail comes in verse 23. It says, Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Either this was to avoid spotlight or because of the, own ta- the town's unbelief. And what stands out about Jesus' care is that he held this man's hand and walked with him. This man could not see the Son of God, but the Son of God could see him. You can imagine what that conversation would have been like. Holding Jesus' hand, just walking with him. Just for those few brief moments. 
And that Jesus was willing to touch this man at all and laid his hands on him showed his care. Here's another reminder that it is not that ordinary, common, broken, and sinful people come up to Jesus and earn their place and earn their rights to be healed by Jesus. No, Jesus comes down to them and brings healing out of his grace. So we see his care. The disciples standing behind that one-way mirror get to see not only his care, but they get to see his power. He has power to heal this man. Again, we've seen Jesus do this in all of Mark so far. And the disciples, again, get to see that Jesus has the power to do only what God can do. Only what God can do. And that power is to restore sight to the blind and to redeem and transform a life. And we don't have to think very hard about how this man's life would have been changed. Look with me at verse 26. You could see it there. You see the difference between that and 23, where Jesus previously held this man, man's hand and led him out of the village. Now, he sends this man home by himself. We may just gloss over that. This is no insignificant detail, though. How exciting something like just a simple walk by yourself would have been for this man. And you don't, if you don't believe me, walk around for a week with a blindfold on, no cheating, then take it off and just see the new things that you appreciate. That's what it would have been like exponentially for this man. There is indeed power in the testimony of a broken life that is redeemed by the Lord. And the disciples get to see that here. While standing behind that one-way mirror, the disciples get to see Jesus' care and power. But they also get to see something unique. They get to see how Jesus operates in this situation. Now, we pointed out what was unique about uh, this healing for Jesus earlier, uh, that he asks a question and he heals not with one touch, but with multiple touches. And it is kind of curious, if we think about it. You know, has Jesus, you know, lost it a little bit? Is he rusty? Did he take too long of a break? Is this one just too hard for him? Did he have to warm up to get his healing powers going? Well, you can kind of sense in the tone I'm asking these questions that the answers are no, no. We've seen previously in Mark, Jesus do what we would say are harder things with just a word. Arisen someone, someone from the dead, cast out thousands of demons that dwelt in a person, just with a word. And so it can't be here that it takes multiple touches because, you know, this is just a tricky one for Jesus. No. With each touch, you notice that Jesus becomes clearer and clearer for this blind man. And that would be something that the disciples needed to witness as those who were said to have eyes but failed to see. Multiple touches continuing to get clearer. So we could take a step back and absorb everything that the disciples must have observed behind that one-way mirror. And we find that the evidence placed in front of the disciples is simply this, what Jesus can do and how he does it. That's the evidence for them, what Jesus can do and how he does it. That's not a huge thing. It's not that complicated. 
You know, if you don't know where to get started with something like sharing Jesus with someone else, don't make it harder than it has to be. Don't underestimate the power of that simple evidence. What Jesus has done for you and how he has done it. Just has to start there. I think of an example of this from John 4. Remember the Samaritan woman at the well? And Jesus has an exchange with her. And the important part, using this simple evidence, comes in John 4, beginning in verse 29. She goes to the rest of her hometown people and says to them, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? There is no evangelistic training. No books that she read, though those would, are helpful things. No, it was simply that Jesus was now so essential to her that it was natural for her to speak about him. He was so central to her life that she just couldn't help speaking about him. Now, friends, what makes something like evangelism natural is when the Lord is so central to our lives that we can't help but speak about him when we're speaking about what's going on in our lives. It doesn't have to be weird. It doesn't have to be dishonest either. Even this woman, she's honest about her struggles. She says, here's a guy who told me all that I ever did, and she hadn't done good things. She had five different husbands. No, it just has to be simple evidence. And she invites them. She doesn't try to argue. She just says, can this be the Christ? Come and see. Can this be the Christ? Consider this. Basic evidence. What Jesus has done, how he has done it, that's the evidence presented to the disciples. And Jesus is going to give the same invitation to his disciples. Can this be the Christ? He's going to give that in our next section. And there we'll see it's not enough just to see the evidence. We must understand and believe it. So, in our next section, beginning in verse 27, the disciples step out behind the one-way mirror and travel with Jesus roughly 25 miles north to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Literally, it means Philip's Caesarea. This would be in modern-day Syria, and it's at the foot of Mount Hermon. Uh, it's a city refurbished by the Tetrarch Philip and named in honor of Caesar Augustus, the great Roman emperor. Caesar Philippi was home to the sanctuary of Pan. Pan was believed to be a guardian of the flocks and nature. So basically, all those details, you summarize it. Caesarea Philippi, this was a Gentile land, and it was a pagan land. And this is where Jesus would be first confessed to be the Christ. So on the way there, Jesus asks his disciples, I think something strange, something peculiar, but it's something of central importance. He asks them, who do people say that I am? Friends, that's a strange question. It's a peculiar one. First of all, because it was a question in the first place. Jesus is supposed to be the teacher after all. His disciples are supposed to be the students. Rabbis didn't ask questions. Their followers did. And out of all the questions to ask, Jesus asked this one. Really, is Jesus this insecure? Who do people say that I am? Is he that concerned about the polls? Is he the guy who checks his phone every 30 seconds to see if he got another like on his Instagram post? (laughs) 
Oh, this is strange for more reasons than that. It's strange because he treats this question with such importance. I mean, really? Is knowing who he is, is that the thing you want us to get, Jesus? That's it. It's not your teaching on ethics. It's not your teaching on how you relate to people. It's not your teaching on just life in general. No, the most important thing we know, if we're getting you right, is who you are. One commentator says it would be something like having a professor for three years and then hearing him say, the most important thing I've been trying to teach you is this. Do you really know who I am? Boy, that would sound strange, wouldn't it? And if this question is of such importance and Jesus is not who he says he is, if he's not the Son of God, if he's not the Christ, then this is an arrogant question. It's not just strange. It's egotistical. It's an awful question. I remember watching a National Geographic documentary, and the film crew went undercover in North Korea. And the crew followed a medical team that performed cataract surgery on people there. There's not a lot of medical needs are supplied, so you can imagine how great of the demand was for this kind of surgery. So this medical team performed multiple cataract surgeries a day, and, and they would keep the recovering patients sitting in one big room. Honestly, it looks like a little church, that one scene that they showed. Uh, and they would all have their bandages on their eyes, and they would unwrap their bandages one by one. And the first uh, one to have their bandages unwrapped was a woman. I think she was around 23 or 24. And, you know, they unwrap it slowly, and her eyes just kind of gently open. And her father is there with her. She recognizes her dad. And among the first things that her father says to her, I mean, this is just a momentous moment in her life. She'd been rendered blind by her cataracts for several years. Among the first things her father says to her is that we must thank the great general for this, Kim Jong-il. We must thank him. And like most rooms in North Korea, they have a portrait of Kim Jong-il, now Kim Jong-un, at the front of the room. And they went up to the front of the room and they bowed before that portrait because now she, he, she could see. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, but he says knowing who he is is that important, it's something as spooky and awful as that in North Korea. It really is. When Jesus says that knowing his identity is something of central importance, it is impossible to have a middle ground view of him. It's impossible. But that's exactly what the opinions of the people were. Notice the three different answers in verse 28. Who do the people say that I am? Say John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Back in chapter 6, Herod Antipas, the ruler of the region of, of Galilee, thought that Jesus was John the Baptist basically come back to life to haunt him because he's, he's the one who executed John the Baptist. Elijah was connected with the time leading up to the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment. It was foretold by Malachi that Elijah would prepare the way for that time. As for Jesus being one of the prophets, Moses said in Deuteronomy that God would one day raise up a final prophet and declare God's word conclusively. 
So if you could summarize the opinion of the people about Jesus, you know, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, how would you summarize it? I think we could say it's a favorable and respectful opinion, belief that God sent him, but it's not a consensus one, and it's not one without skepticism. So friends, here's the point. Given the importance of Jesus' identity that he lays out here, this is the most important thing that you should know. And the level of his claims and actions he's done previously in Mark, claims to forgive sin, seeing that he calms storms. In light of those things, a favorable, respectful view of Jesus is not only not enough, it won't work. It won't work. Jesus makes too strong of claims, and he is just too unique to be another prophet. So C.S. Lewis famously wrote of this in his book, Mere Christianity. It's worth quoting at length because uh, he says it a lot better than me. Uh, he says this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You could shut him up for a fool. You could spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems obvious to me that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. Consequently, however, strange and terrifyingly or unlikely it may be, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Who do people say that I am? There are lots of answers. But really, there are only two options. We dismiss him or we accept and worship him. There can't be a third way. We'll examine this argument more in the last section. But for now, we have to say that there are wrong conclusions about Jesus. Yes, there are wrong conclusions about Jesus. Just like there were wrong conclusions about Jesus back then, so there are wrong conclusions about Jesus today. I know that's not a popular thing to say. But even in their favorable opinions about Jesus, whether it be from Muslims or Buddhists or Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Hindus or Baha'is or secular people, those favorable opinions don't go far enough. If Jesus is the eternal Son of God, he's worthy of worship, not just an attaboy. If he's not the eternal son of God, we shouldn't have a favorable opinion of him. We should dismiss him. Now listen. We're not saying that we shouldn't be kind and respectful to those who have come to those wrong conclusions about Jesus. Reminded of what Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy, he says the servant of the Lord must be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
So we're not saying we shouldn't be kind and respectful, but we are saying we can't all be right. Just can't. We can't all be right. And friends, we have to get Jesus right. We have to. It's too important. Why is this important? Why is getting Jesus right so important? Because he is our only way back to God. Him and him alone. You can read that verse behind me. Or you can read 1 John 2, verse 23. It says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. He is the one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. So, let's go to the next section, the last one. As we go there, do you remember algebra? Me neither. <laughs> I'm not talking about the actual subject. Uh, algebra class. Do you remember algebra class? At least something like it. Now, picture algebra class, you sitting in the rows of the students, those desks with the chairs attached to the table like that. Um, and your teacher asks a question that you don't know. What is the classic tactic not to answer that question? You avoid eye contact by whatever means necessary. Now, if you're really good at this, you can avoid eye contact in subtle, non-noticeable ways so that you are invisible. So my strategy, see, this is what I thought of while in algebra class, is that you answer questions early. So usually the early questions are the easy ones, and so you get out of the way. <laughs> Attention's diverted from you. He's, now she's focused on everybody else for the hard questions. Look at how verse 29 begins. It says this, And he asked them. And he asked them. Jesus cuts through that tactic. There's no skirting this. There's no leaning on what others say. I don't care what other people think. I want to know what you think. He looks them in the eye and asks, Who do you say that I am? Friends, that question confronts each one of us. No skirting it. No talking, uh, seeing what other people think. No, it's you. Who do you say Jesus is? And Peter speaks up. Now, usually this doesn't end with good things when that happens. We'll see that next week. It doesn't take long for Peter to put his foot in his mouth again. <laughs> Peter acts as a spokesperson for the entire lot of the disciples. And he says that Jesus is the Christ. Christ, a little bit of background, is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, which means to anoint or anointed one. In the Old Testament, Christ refers to a royal figure who God would raise up, who would usher in the kingdom of God, who would establish justice and peace in all the earth, and who would rule forever. Promised throughout the Old Testament, one of those promises we read earlier, Jeremiah 23. Listen to verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise up for David, a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now hope for the Christ, hope for the Messiah, intensified as Israel came under Roman oppression. They expected one who would come and destroy God's enemies and deliver them from the Gentile rule. 
That's the background. And yet, right here, Peter and the crew recognizes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And they recognize that even before they see him do what everyone expected the Messiah to do. Reclaim Israel rule. Shake off the shackles of Rome. Now Matthew fills out the rest of what Peter says. Not just that Jesus is the Christ, but also that he is the son of the living God. Now we'll have to nuance how much the disciples actually understand this in a moment. But right here, we have to say that this is no small deal. It's no small deal given the expectations of the Messiah in their day. And it's no small deal given what the disciples would have grown up hearing. Now, there are some people who will say, some critics, some skeptics will say, okay, I get that Jesus makes strong claims. And that, makes, that really only creates for us two options. But what if the disciples just made up the claims that Jesus had? Well, friends, what if? Consider what these disciples grew up in. Would they have made up these claims? The answer is no. The answer is no. Here, C.S. Lewis is helpful again, responding to this kind of criticism, that the disciples would make up these strong claims about Jesus. He says, this is difficult because Jesus' followers were all Jews. That is, they belonged to that nation which of all others was most convinced that there was only one God, that there could not possibly be another. And it's very odd that this horrible invention about a religious leader should grow up among the one people in the whole earth least likely to make such a mistake. On the contrary, we get the impression that none of his immediate followers or even the New Testament writers embraced the doctrine all that easily. It took a while for the disciples to get that Jesus is the Son of God. It's just not the environment that they grew up on. You are the Christ. That statement comes against everything they grew up around and despite all the blindness that they had previously displayed. In this moment, this is where they conclude. And as we uh, close our time reflecting on this conclusion, ask you three questions. Three questions. What do you say? What makes the difference? And what do we still need? What do you say? What makes the difference? What do you still need? Or what do you say? Brenda, have you dealt with this question of who Jesus is? Or have you found a way to avoid eye contact and put it off all the time? Jesus will show the disciples that they need to understand more than who he, uh, to find out who he truly is. More on that in a minute. But he still asks them this in this moment. So this tells us, friends, that we hold in our hands now this book. This is enough to answer this question, who Jesus is. It's more than enough. We have more than the disciples had at this moment. You don't need the Next Life magazine or History Channel documentary telling you about the real Jesus. When what we have in the Bible is the testimony of the men who saw him, who were with him for three years, who touched him. And one of the reasons that these men wrote this book, these books and these letters, 
was so that we can answer that question, this question here. Who do you say that I am? That's the central purpose of Mark's book. The book of John's similar. It's no different. By the end of John's gospel, he says that he could have written down more things, yeah. But he wrote down what he wrote so that those who read it would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So friends, what do you say? You don't have to go further than this book to answer it. If you want help answering it, helpful guide to this book, there's a little red tract out in the lobby. It says, who is Jesus? That'd be a great place to start. So what do you say? We urge you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Not so that we all can say, told you so, but for the same reason that the Apostle John says at the end of his book. You may believe in the Christ, and believing in him, you may have life in his name. That's why. Romans 10.9 says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friends, don't skirt this. If this is like uh, our eyes being opened, then think again of the story of the blind man. Uh, faith in Jesus doesn't look like just agreeing with certain things about him. It, it looks like that first walk home for that blind man. A joy, a thrill. A devotion, a rest, a determination. Not just agreeing in your mind. This is a whole heart faith. Jesus is the Christ. So what makes the difference? Second question. What makes the difference? How do the disciples go from where we saw them last week in the boat, forgetting what Jesus did just over bread and not having bread, that foolish of an incident, how do they go from that to where they are this week, saying that Jesus is the Christ. What makes the difference? Again, Matthew's account of the same event is helpful. There Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. <clears throat> Friends, remember the story of the blind man. His ability to see, where did that come from? It didn't come from himself. He didn't open his own eyes. Jesus opened them. Faith is a gift from God. That's what Ephesians 2.8 says. And yet we are told we must believe. Now, if you're here, if you have yet to believe in Christ, don't feel like you have to resolve that tension. That's okay. And don't say that you're going to wait until God gives you faith. No. We say believe in Jesus now, and that will show God has worked in you. Faith being a gift from God is a reminder that salvation is from the Lord from start to finish, from beginning to end. He gets glory and he gets glory alone. He chose us before we chose him. He lived a sinless life, not us. He bore the punishment for our sin, not us. He rose again, not us. He opened our hearts and our eyes to give us faith. It is not our achievement. Our persevering until heaven will ultimately be because he held on to us, not because we held on to him. What makes the difference at any point in the story of our salvation? It is not us. It is the Lord. It's not the potential that was in us all along. It is the Lord. <clears throat> Last question. What do they still need? 
What do they still need? This passage ends on another seemingly strange note. You look at verse 30. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, the last couple of weeks, the disciples have been the ones to suck the air out of the room and deflate the moment. And now the tables turn, and Jesus is the one who does this. You would have thought that this would have been a moment worth celebrating a little longer. But then Jesus says, don't tell anybody. What gives us this? It must mean that the disciples still need to know something else about Jesus. The disciples still need to understand that they get it, but they don't fully get it yet. Again, think of the blind man at the beginning of the story. When Jesus first touched him, he could see, but he couldn't understand. It's one thing to see, it's an, but if you don't understand what you see, there's really no point. So Jesus touched him again. If we can compare the disciples to the blind man, we could say that at this point, they are like the blind man and that they see people, but they're like trees walking. They see Jesus, but they don't fully understand him. Why? Why don't they get it fully yet? We're going to find out more next week. But because they still need to know about the cross. You can't know, you can't answer the question, who is Jesus without his cross? You can. Jesus is the Christ, the eternal Son of God, and he took on flesh to bear God's wrath for the sin of all who would believe in him. And for us to save, we need to know both. We need to know his person and his work. We need to know who he is and what he has done. He alone is qualified to do his work, and he has accomplished that work of dying for our sins. So now, all of us here, we stand on the other side of the cross in the empty tomb. And we have everything we need to know about Jesus. And after rising again, Jesus has a different command for his disciples than the one he has for them in verse 30. What does he tell them instead? He'd, after he rose again, he doesn't say, you must tell no one. No. He says, you must tell everyone. We have the whole great story about our Lord. And friends, the promise gets even better. Think about the Lord continuing to give his disciples understanding, continuing to open their eyes. That promise remains for you and for me, for all of us here. The Lord opens our eyes to see him, that we would conclude rightly about him, that we would bow our knee to him as Lord and we would trust him alone as Savior. But the Lord doesn't stop at that point. He promises to continue to open our eyes. Think of the prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians, who were already Christians. He prays that God would enlighten the eyes of their heart, that they would know the hope to which he has called them, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. God has promised to complete the good work he started in those who have faith in Christ so that they will be made like him. He promises that our sight will get better and better and that one day we will no longer see as through a glass dimly, 
but we shall see him as he is. God has given us sight to see Christ, and we come to him and ask that we would see him more and more clearly until we get to glory. Let's pray. Lord, we say now that glory belongs to you alone. Credit belongs to you alone. You make the difference, not us. You lived perfectly. You died as our substitute. You rose again. You opened our eyes, and you will bring us home. Thank you. Help us to lean on you. Help us to trust you. And God, we say now, as we are on our way home, continue to open our eyes. Lord, keep your promise. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs>